This is No Stop Lights with Ken Ard. I want to thank our sponsors, Mickey Fans, Marlboro PD Electric, Carolina Bank, Pepsi of Florence. They continue to sponsor this non-impactful podcast that we hope to one day make somewhat impactful. We have with us South Carolina Lieutenant Governor Pamela Evett. 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 I said it on, <laughs> I did that on purpose. I really did. I, mean, did. I, I, knew, I knew it was Evett. I just said Evett to, to try and get a, uh, a response. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. How are or, you, Or this is a podcast. I can say good afternoon, good night, good morning, good, good, good. You can listen to it whenever you want. Yeah, Wiki, you can listen whenever whenever you choose. You and I have had an extensive conversation about your political prospects, your political beliefs, your political leanings. I want to do something a little bit different, if you'll allow. Okay. Let's put together the Republican Party on the other side of Donald Trump. Wow. Uh, I mean, well, I I want to make sure we agree on this. Yeah. We agree that John McCain, Bob Dole, George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush are in our rearview mirror. Yeah, yeah, we, we would agree that historically we've been a interventionist, globalist, free trading party. Yes. Okay. And we can debate globalism. I'm good and bad. We can debate interventionism, good and bad. But I think you and I agree that the days of neoconservatism being the dominant foreign policy theory are, are not the case. So I, I, I agree with, with, yeah, basically, we have, we, if anything has showed us that globalism has its challenges, it was COVID, okay. right? Because supply change. That's right. Supply changes broke down. And so now you had this idea under President Trump and what he did is he created these buckets of money, right, at the federal government saying if you'll onshore, we'll help you. If you'll bring, you know, if you'll come you know, not just come back, but if you'll develop something here, technology wise, production wise, that we're having to buy overseas, we're gonna help you out with that business endeavor. And so we have learned that that isn't the way it works uh, in, in a really, if you really want to streamline what you're doing. I mean, look at BMW. All of their major suppliers have to be within a few miles of their facility. And so what does that tell you? I mean, you know, this German company wants everybody right around them because they don't want production impacted. So uh, you're right. There is a whole new vision on how that looks. Um, I think we have a whole new appreciation of closing our borders and coming up with an immigration policy that really works, that works like it did in 1910 when all my grandparents came over, right? You had to you had to be filling a need in the country you were coming to, so you had to have a skill that they needed. You had to make sure that, you know, somebody was here to help you, help you learn the ropes, help you get settled. You know, these were these were all things that, you know, brought that Eastern European wave and worked very well within our country, some of the most, you know, prosperous times we've ever saw. You agree that populism is a pervasive emotional energy, but not a coherent governing philosophy. Yeah, I, I think we have to look at, you know, what are our needs? How do we fill those needs? Because to say, you know, we have enough workers in our country to work, we don't. Look at South Carolina. Pre-COVID, we have 100,000 more people working today than we did pre-COVID. We have 80,000, roughly, jobs looking for people. So when people say, well, where did all of our people go? You know, when I'm down at the peach farm and I'm talking with them, if they didn't have, you know, visa workers, they wouldn't be able to pick their peaches. And, and they said to me, you know, this is a real problem for them. He said, we could put 250 jobs out there and nobody will apply for them. So if we didn't have those, you know, visa workers, 
He said, and if I had to pay people $20 an hour to pick peaches, he said, none of us would be able to afford to buy peaches at the grocery store. It's just the reality of it. But there is a way to do that. And until we stop fighting each other and you figure out how do you how do you figure out what the needs are in our country? How do you have an immigration system that works to fill those needs, allows people to work and then go back home? I, I don't know how how we're going to solve these problems the way we're just arguing and screaming at each other now. Okay, you, you and I are supporters of President Trump. Yes. I, I think, I mean, I, I'll say it. I don't know if you will or not. I mean, Trump was the quintessential wrecking ball. I mean, he, <laughs> he broke all the norms. I mean, he led us in a very different direction. Some like, some don't like. But 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 chaos ensued. And anytime you break the mold, you're going to have some chaotic moments or two or three. I would argue it's healthy for the body politic to check itself every every now and then. But but Lieutenant Governor of South Carolina is going to be allowed in the room where we're going to create the intellectual underpinning yeah. of the America first political platform that carries the day for the next 20 years. What do you bring the, to the table? What are your priorities if you were allowed to once again, um, as we break the mold of the old and introduce to the new, what, what, what would Pamela Evett or Yvette like to see <laughs> as part of um, as part of the new norm? I think we have to focus on energy. We need to be energy independent. You know, President Trump, that was a huge flag that he carried because we realized that's just not a way to allow us to keep growing, to bring manufacturing back to our country. But it, it is it is keeps us safe. It's a national security issue to make sure that, you know, we have enough energy if 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 the Saudis cut us off, if Russia cuts us off, if. You know, if we can't get oil where we're getting it from, we got to get it here. And so how do we continue? We have enough natural gas from everything I've read and all the experts I've listened to to take us for a long, long time. So why aren't we utilizing that? Why aren't we looking at safe ways to get that out of the ground? I think there is a way that we can keep everybody happy. I think sometimes when people say, I don't want a pipeline, you know, this is dangerous. It's because we're looking at old technology, you know, at, uh, we had a we had a big think tank here in South Carolina. We brought all the energy people to the table. Jeff Duncan, Jeff Duncan, Congressman Duncan, you know he's leading the you know the Energy Commission at the federal level, and that's what he said. He said so many times people have negative thoughts about energy and pipelining because they're looking at old technology, and some of those things maybe didn't do the best, or maybe we had issues with them. But when you look at the new technology, it should make people feel a whole lot better. But we're always judging things based on the past and what happened in the past and not how we fixed it for the future. So so how do we, I mean, it, you know as well as I do that elections uh, are about winning. Yeah. I mean, you got to win to be in power. You got to win to promote policy or advocate policy. You got to win to make laws. Um, if there is this divide in the party, mm-hmm. and there are some, I don't want to call them hangers on, that's unfair, but there are some who still believe that the, the, the globalist interventionist priorities of the Republican Party of days gone by is still best. How where where is the the convergence point? Where is the the meeting of the minds between uh, I guess the zealot that that is the America firster today and the traditional Republican that are struggling with this confusion within. You know, I wish I wish I I knew. I think I could be I could be quite a political strategist if I could figure that completely out. But you out. accept that's a reality. I, I mean, you you're a Republican office holder. There's a, a a pulling from this way and a pulling from that way. I, I, I got to believe, I mean, if I'm sensing as a non-elected official, you've got to realize it. Oh, I see it. Uh, and I see. I think we see it more at our federal level than we do at our state level because we still have decorum. 
um, within the state house. I mean, there there are things we don't agree on, but it's it it doesn't become such a bloodbath as we see happening in Congress, right? Every time we turn on our TV, I think what does that is really sitting down and having honest conversations, and. And, you know, that that old my, my dad used to have a great saying, if you want to sit down and have a great negotiation, then everybody walks away a little happy. Everybody walks a little way sad. But now we feel as a badge of honor to walk away sad. <laughs> We'd rather we are looking for perfection and we're letting greatness fall to the side. And and, and until we can get over that, then I don't, I don't know how we come together, but we can't stop trying. And and we have to really figure out what are the real issues and elected officials, I truly believe we were elected to carry the ideas of our people. So when you're elected in a district, you may disagree with everybody in your district, but it's your job to carry their will, whether it be to Columbia or to D.C. You know, you can't be bigger than your position. And I think that's that seems to be the problem. We've seen that play out over and over again where and we've seen how, you know, districts reacted to that. You didn't do the will of your district and your district found somebody who will go and do your will. I think until until we can get more people involved in the process, I don't know how you get those people who are willing to be business minded, who will come in and negotiate, who will come in and talk. We have to get more people involved. We talked about it earlier when only 16 percent of the state comes out to vote in a primary. How are you electing somebody at 16% that is going to have the same ideas as the body that they're representing, right? So how do we get people more involved in the process? I think that's how you start to make change because we see that there's a complete divide for how you run in a primary than you do in a general election. And until you can get more people where the, the mix becomes different, I think that's how you get off of those single issues. You look at a bigger picture. You see what is a better lay of the land for the people you represent and not just a finite amount of people. Is, is it fair to say, I mean, I, I use the terminology stale, pale, and male. Mm-hmm. Oh, the Republican Party became very stale, very pale, very male. Um, we have a mutual friend, Mike Rickenbach, uh-huh. senator here from, uh, from Florence County, um, it seems that every time I have a question about minority in the Republican party, I go to Mike <laughs> and, and I got to believe when someone has, I mean, we have a problem with diversity. We do. I mean, our party is, has historically been more stale, more pale, more male. You're a female elected Republican second highest office in the state of South Carolina. Do, do, do you feel victimized by that in a weird way? In other words, when, um, Hey, we've got this, uh, we've got this African-American Senator. We've got this female governor. We had this Indian American you know, female governor before her. I mean, we're, we're diverse. Are, are, are we, are we giving lip service to diversity? Are we, are we trying to make, I don't know, uh, examples. What, when I talk about Mike and African-Americans or you and females, can't we do a little better than that? You know, I, I I'm going to, I'm going to answer this the same way I answered it when I spoke at girl state earlier this year. So the very first question I was asked is, do you not, does it make you sad that South Carolina ranks 47th in women in office. And I said, no, it doesn't make me sad because we were ranked number four in women owned, run and led businesses in the country. We just have to be, and I say this about everything. We don't have to sit at every seat that we're invited to. We just got to make sure we're invited to the party. And so women historically don't like this. this, this life, this political world, they don't like to entangle, and this is what I'm hearing from my friends who own big businesses. 
Every day they say, I wouldn't do what you do for all the money in the world. I wouldn't put my family in the middle of it. I wouldn't want to be in the middle of it. And so maybe it's not that you're, they're not invited. It's not that they don't want to be there. I say, don't get mad at the, the stale, pale male uh, that he holds near 93% of the offices if they run for 93% of the positions. What I think would be a travesty is if we had all these diverse people running and they didn't win and it stayed that way. I just don't think it, it's okay that they don't want to, right? I think it's, I think it's okay if women don't want to run for office. But if you do, you should be able to. And well, we are well, okay, able to. Okay, i got to interrupt you there. What, what made you different? I mean, the majority of women have a lot to say uh-huh. that they want to contribute. But they're like, no, I, I'm not doing that. I mean, I'm, I'm not putting my family. There, there's some sense of paranoid insecurity they have. Um, it may be a, a test grade they had in the eighth grade. You know what I'm, I'm, I'm going yeah. here. But so, so, so why do you perceive a lot of women genuinely care and have an interest, but they choose to not get to that degree involved. So from what I hear from my friends, right, and that's not everybody, that's a very small sampling, sure. is they don't want to deal with the name calling. They don't want their kids to be impacted by the names that people call them. I What made me do it is we, we were a very political family. My dad talked about politics. My mom talked about politics. I talked about politics to my kids. They, I felt that they were equipped. My youngest was younger than I would have liked uh, when the governor asked me to run as his lieutenant governor. But this was a window. A good friend of mine said, this is a window that will only be open for a short period of time. You will go from the business world to lieutenant governor. And that doesn't happen often. And, and so my kids, I felt, were really equipped. They all did very well with it. So I think you individually look at it, but you're right. You look and turn on the TV and you see the fighting and the infighting and the things and the lies. And 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 somebody told me once, don't be afraid of what you've done because you've not done anything wrong. Be afraid of what somebody's going to make up that you've done, that you're going to have a hard time figuring out how to say, I never did that, right? And that's what scares people away. The people who are genuinely just good, God-fearing people, um, they're, they're like, I, I'm not going to put my family in the mix of that. I'm just the opposite. I, mean, I got three older brothers. Maybe that made me a little tougher. Maybe that made me not care. Um, but I sat back and I grew my business. And I thought, if we keep running good people away, then who's making these laws for us? And for me, I've always been a bit of a fighter. And I was like, well, if not me, who? Right. Does so it, get you, in there. You, you mentioned ninety three percent of the uh, of elected officials being male. I, I, I got to ask you this: uh, Roe v. Wade is overturned. Uh-huh. I was always concerned: could the Republican state yes for an answer? Mm-hmm. I always knew that states would have these different opinions and dynamics and conversations and debates about it. I, I got to ask you this in a very humanistic way: Does it bother you as a woman to watch a bunch of men argue over whether and when a woman should be allowed to end a pregnancy? No, it didn't. I mean, women, put your voice into it. If you don't agree with it, put your voice into it. And there were a lot of women who stood with those men. You know, there was a whole movement of women. And I think that's the part that made me really want to be out in front of it. Because I got tired of hearing men shouldn't tell us what to do. Well, men are 50% of the reason we got to the point of what we're making this decision about, right? But I saw a whole group of very strong women that were standing with those men but unfortunately, the camera was only on one, right? So I'm fortunate I got to see the backstory of that. 
Um, so it didn't really bother me as, as long as they asked me my opinion. And and from all the men I saw, and, you know, we talked about our mutual friend, Senator Rickenbaugh. He did a great job talking about his own life, right? Because he's a man and he was adopted. He was the product of a young mother who chose life. So I think that was really personal to him. I think he had every right to say, thank you for not aborting me and giving me the chance at this great life I have with a great family and a great career. So I think, you know, to just say that they shouldn't have a say, why shouldn't Senator Rickenbaugh had to say? It was, it's his life. Why does Trump have a problem with female voters? Because, um, I mean, the data clearly shows he does. Yeah. I mean, in suburban moms and independent-minded uh, women voters, I mean, that, that's kind of a blind spot for him right now. Well, what, do you, what do you make of that? I think it was a good PR firm on the other side, mm-hmm. making women feel like you shouldn't support them. Um, How do you combat that good PR firm on the other side? Well, I, I would consider you a spokesperson for President Trump. Yeah, well, I was in Pickens mm-hmm. uh, when he was there, and that's what I said. I like to say, as a mom, not as a lieutenant governor, not as a Republican, as a mom, I want a president who's going to keep my country safe, who's going to close off my borders, who's going to give my kids and my grandkids an opportunity, who's going to make sure he creates an economy that they can live in and, and, and thrive in. That's what I want from my president. And I think I have been saying that more and more, that as a mom, as a woman, this is what's important to me. I'm more scared today for my children's safety than I was four years ago. You know, any woman listening to this who says, I could never support President Trump because I don't like what he says, sticks and stones, right? Like he, he if you, if you come at the president, the president's going to come after you. <laughs> I think he's very fair in that. He will, he, he does not pull punches no matter who you are, what color you are, what race you are. He doesn't care. And I think, isn't, isn't that what we're talking about? Is everybody being treated fairly? That's kind of what he's doing. But I just think as a mom, I'll teach all those things. If I don't like the way he talks or a professional athlete talks or anybody talks, that learning comes in my home first and I will teach it. You do what you do as president. Keep me safe. All those things that I can't control, but you can, that's why I pick them. And that's what women should be saying. Are my children safer today than they were four years ago? And I don't think there's a mom out there that can say that because fentanyl is flying across our borders. We have more kids dying. Fentanyl overdoses last year up 182%, affecting kids from 10 to 19. Biggest epidemic we've had. And as a mom, that wasn't happening four years ago. Our kids were safer then. Last question, and I appreciate your time. You spent a good bit of time with us here this morning on the radio and, and doing a podcast. Um, I, I'm famous for when, when these guys tell me there's somebody making themselves available, I automatically think they're either writing a book or they're thinking <laughs> about another uh, campaign. You're the lieutenant governor of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. The person you work for is term limited. Mm-hmm. So there's a natural inclination for me to believe that the reason you're in this studio making yourself available, you're not writing a book, I don't think. I didn't see a book. I'm not writing a book. Okay, you did, you're not writing a book. I don't have any time to but, write But you've got to be testing the waters. I mean, let's be honest and candid. You've got to be testing the waters. You're the sitting lieutenant governor, uh, governor's term limited. What, what are your plans? Are there plans? Um, I know what the answer is going to be. Well, I mean, I, you know, I'll consider all things. And But, I mean, you, you got to consider this. I mean, you, you got to think about the next step. How are you 
sorting through? I'm not asking you yay or nay. You don't owe yeah. me that. But how are you sorting through that dynamic? I think you have to keep liking serving the people. If there's one thing I've learned from Governor McMaster, you've got to like service. And you like to it. And I do like service. I like helping people. What I'm focused on, and, and I'm 100% sincere, is I'm focused on flipping that White House and getting a Republican back in that White House. And Trump is my guy. And, uh, you know, I will, I will be over the moon when he is elected into office. But I'm a Republican. And if for some reason, and I, I mean this sincerely to everybody, you're allowed to love who you love in a primary. And you should work hard for him. But whoever our nominee is, I will hold that flag as high as I can. And I'll make sure that we get a Republican in the White House. And if it's not my guy, I'll cry for a day. And I'll go home and I'll boohoo and then I'll get out and know that it is bigger than any one person. Our party has got to win. I may not agree with everybody 100 percent, but Ronald Reagan had a great saying that I keep hearing over and over. If you agree with me, you know, if you if you disagree with me 20 percent of the time, you're not 20 percent my enemy. Right. You're 80 percent my friend. And so we got to we got to come together. Uh, I, I hope. For every Republican listening to this, I hope I don't hear you out there saying, well, this wasn't my guy. This wasn't my gal. I'm not going to vote for him because it, it's something what's happening in our country, what's happening in our world. When I was in Israel, I had dinner with Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, he's been out in the news a lot lately. You know, I hope everybody's praying for our friends in Israel. But he said when there is weak leadership in America, the whole world is in peril. And he said that a year ago before Ukraine. He said that before Israel got invaded um, just a few weeks ago, and he is spot on. We need a strong leader that shows that the United States has resolve, and we are not going to put up with shenanigans from anybody. Okay. Well explained. I didn't get an answer. I didn't expect to get an answer from that. <laughs> I, I, I got a political diatribe, which is exactly what I expected to get. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Ken.